Well, hi, and welcome to the season one finale of the Viewfinders Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Graham Dargie, and today I have a very inspirational chat with award-winning travel and documentary photographer, Brian Hodges. Uh, I'm really excited to share this episode, and I'll introduce you to Brian in a minute. But first, I wanted to take a second to just acknowledge that this is the final episode of the first season, and uh, it's been an amazing journey for me. Um, I just had the initial idea to do a podcast. Well, initially I had an idea to do a podcast a couple of years ago, and I never really followed it through. And uh, with the strange year that we've had in 2020, um, I just kind of needed something to do. <laughs> so um, uh, I give myself uh, this project to do, uh, and well, things were a little bit quiet in this strange year. And uh, it's been a big learning curve. I had a lot of work to get it off the ground. Uh, and I have to mention uh, a friend of mine, Bob Gentle, who has a digital marketing podcast called Amplify. Uh, Bob gave me some great advice and just the nudge that I needed to go ahead and do the podcast. So from that initial idea to here, now having 10 episodes out there with amazing photographers from around the world, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a great adventure for me. And um, so I want to thank each of my guests, Audrey Wollard, Mark McCall, Donna Kraus, Craig Fraser, Julian Terreros Martin, Valda Bailey, Nick Tucker, Osborne Masharia, John Clark, and today's guest Brian Hodges for their time and their input into the podcast. Hopefully, we've created something great that you enjoy listening to, and uh, the feedback certainly has been very positive and very rewarding to see all the reviews and the comments that we've gotten. So, really appreciate it. We're already working hard on season two, and I've got some great episodes already in the can. So I'll be launching season two in January sometime. If you've enjoyed this season, why not share the podcast with your photography friends? And I would love to connect with you. You can find me on social media, Instagram, YouTube and Facebook. I'd love to see the photography you've been up to and drop me a line to let me know that you listen to the show too. Mostly, I want to thank the hundreds of listeners who have downloaded the show. When you put something like this together, I didn't know, you know, how many listeners I would get. I had no frame of reference for that. So anything was going to be positive. But the one thing I kind of thought to myself was, it has to be more than seven. If I do all this work and I get seven listeners, I'll just be a bit depressed. So I don't know why seven was the magic number for me. But uh, without going into specifics, I can tell you that each episode has far exceeded seven listeners. So thanks to each of you for giving your time and attention to the show. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, look forward to more in season two. I've got some great guests I'm going to continue to work on my uh, presenting and my interview skills and hopefully continue to make better and better shows for you to enjoy well into next year. So uh, now is the time to introduce this week's guest, Brian Hodges. Brian Hodges is a travel and documentary photographer based in New South Wales, Australia. Brian's mission to explore the world outside his comfort zone has led him to 60 countries around the world and his photography, which I described to my wife, as heart-achingly beautiful, just won him the 2020 IPA People Photographer of the Year Award. That's a big deal. Our conversation covers how Brian went from designing satellite telecommunication systems in Paris to photographing tribesmen in Papua New Guinea, raising his kids on the road, and how a chance conversation with a doctor in America ended up saving the life of a child he'd previously photographed in Uganda. It's an inspiring story. I'm sure you're going to take lots away from this. 
and it's my pleasure to introduce my conversation with Brian Hodges. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Good morning from Australia. I've never talked to anyone as far away from myself as this. I, I don't mm-hmm. know how far it is exactly, but I'm in Scotland, you're in Australia. It's, it's pretty exciting that we can do this. It, it's extraordinary and there's, there's very little uh, delay in the connection. Yeah. For people who might not know you, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your photography? Sure. My name is Brian Hodges. Um, I've been practicing photography for about 20 years. Um, Prior to that, I was a telecommunications software engineer. Um, And I think that informs my approach to photography in in many ways. Um, I uh, like to call myself a documentary uh, travel photographer. Um, I'm very uh, driven by portrait work. and uh, recently I've been uh, doing a lot of uh, work in Africa, specifically Uganda. Uh, I have a, a long-term project uh, I'm working on there. Um, portraiture and travel photography is really what I, what I focus on. Mm. Well, I, I discovered your work quite recently. I was just saying um, before we recorded and um, I just loved it. I love the way you photograph people. Uh, from different places, some some people who probably have challenges that most of us can't really understand, but you shoot these people with such dignity and strength, um, and I love that. I just I really appreciate that. Um, mm, and you. the other thing that uh, the other thing that got me when I dig deeper into your website, um, there's the the work that I've sort of described there. But then I found this um, interiors photography, which I really didn't expect. And then the sort of editorial portraits of you know business people and so on, that really gets my attention because when you're shooting different kinds of things to a really high standard, that I think that's that's really good. So, uh, congratulations for that. I just thought it was amazing work, and I was really keen to to talk to you. Let's go back in time. You just said that um, you have a satellite communications background. Uh, I was curious as to how what what kind of career that was and how one thing led to photography which seems like a completely different thing what happened there well i I think there is um something that probably connects my former life as an engineer to what i'm doing now uh in photography and that is curiosity uh at my core i'm a really curious person Uh, i want to know how things work i want to know how people think um i want to have a, a deeper understanding of the world um at times it's a curse uh I, I can't prevent myself from going down rabbit holes but um the bottom line that is what drives me uh so from a from a very uh, early age uh i had a desire to understand how things worked um i would often dismantle the toys that people gave me dismantle things uh lots of tinkering um and that eventually led to uh, my studies in electrical and computer engineering. Uh, and uh, I did that in, in Colorado, Boulder, Colorado. I'm from California originally. Yeah. And um, after receiving that uh, degree, uh, part of me felt like I still didn't have the education that I, that I dreamt of. Uh, in particular, I felt um, somewhat uh, lacking in languages. I wanted to to pick up another language. 
Um, I ended up um, buying a one-way ticket to France, to Paris, France, um, with the half-cooked idea of, of finding a quick job, becoming a waiter, whatever, and uh, perhaps spending a summer. Um, once I got there, uh, I realized that, um, first of all, the idea of becoming a waiter was a foolish idea. French French uh, waiters in Paris are career professionals, and uh, mm. that was certainly out of my league. Uh, but I discovered that there were job opportunities in, in my field of study, software engineering, um, and uh, ended up uh, thinking I would stay for a summer, but stayed for 10 years. Um, I went back to, to university in France, got a master's degree, um, became proficient in the language, obviously, which was my first uh, first goal. But mm. but more importantly, I think um, became uh, multicultural. Um, I learned what it was like to be French. Uh, mm. and, and in the end, I think that's even more important than than becoming multilingual. So that really expanded um, my perspective uh on, on on the world and people and um all the while i was writing software code i had this um aesthetic that i wanted to express um and i remember distinctly aligning my 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 code that really no one sees because it's compiled and turns into a program but I was very careful about the visual arrangement and alignment of my code that that meant something to me, and I had mm. this this inner aesthetic that I that I wanted to express. And uh, software is software code is probably not the best vehicle to express that. Um, mm. But uh, I, I practiced uh, telecommunications engineering for 15 years, um, ended up writing satellite uh, software uh, to communicate with, with vehicles. Um, so really, really went deep into that and had a wonderful career that took me around the world. Uh, the whole time I was indifferent to photography and really hadn't, hadn't discovered it. Um, and then uh, I ended up uh, meeting a French woman, uh, starting a family, getting married, and uh, realized that raising a family was was incompatible with my uh, intense uh, career, and uh, took took a pretty uh, sharp turn uh, away from my my technology career. And focused on on my family and and more of a lifestyle that that I wanted my children to to know. And then that slowly turned into photography, which is a whole nother story. But I'll I'll let you intervene if you have any other questions. Yeah, well, I, I was curious to know obviously when photography came on your radar. Then, mm -hmm. well, um, children and travel uh, were were strong drivers. Uh, we. Um, traveled a lot um and i felt compelled to document my children it just it just was fun uh coupled with our with our journeys um we ended up moving back to california and um remodeling an old house uh mostly on our own and and had fun doing that there's there was a magazine the local magazine santa barbara magazine um learned of, of our 
of our house and uh, our lifestyle. And they said, you know, we, we would love to document you and feature you in our magazine. And uh, both my wife and I decided that we really didn't want that invasion of our, of our privacy. The idea of being featured in a magazine didn't appeal to us. And we, uh, we said no. But then I thought about it for a while and I said, well, what if I were to take the pictures and really do this story as, as we see it from, from inside and not have someone document us? And uh, at the time I had some good friends that were studying at the Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara, which, which used to be one of the premier uh, photographic schools. And um, my main interest in cameras was actually the devices themselves uh, I was fascinated by the camera and the mechanical aspects of it and, mm. and really wanted to, to take them apart. I remember my friend had a, uh, a Memia RZ and uh, I loved holding this, this, this machine in my hands. And I was kind of indifferent as to what photographs might come out of it, but wanted to, uh, to examine it deeper and take it apart. Um, so strangely, this this the camera the device itself pulled me into photography mm -hmm. um santa barbara magazine saw a few photographs that i had on the refrigerator and um i went back to them and said well uh would you consider allowing me to uh photograph this job um to be featured in the magazine and graciously they said yes give it a try mm -hmm. so um I ended up buying a camera. I bought a, I bought an RZ. Uh, I went straight into medium format film from zero and mm. essentially spent a whole summer teaching myself uh, how to take pictures. Um, mm. And again, I had this internal aesthetic. I knew what I wanted. Uh, I just didn't have the skills to, to capture it yet. And mm. I uh, paid great attention and, and focused my energies on, on, on creating the images I want and ended up shooting my family, essentially, shooting my house and my family with my lovely camera and uh, felt pretty satisfied with the results. Um, mm. Ultimately, they were published and uh, it was very well received. Uh, the magazine loved the work. And that was really the beginning of a, of a photography career. Um, mm. They assigned me to other jobs after that and um, things unfolded very organically. Mm, so that's great. So you just kind of fell into it from there. That's amazing. Um, mm. And what year was that roughly? I want to say 2002 or three. Okay, so okay, a good while back now. Mm. Um, and so, okay, so from from there, I was just to go back slightly, I, I just thought going from uh, your previous career to being a photographer, it's like going from something very secure to something very insecure. Yeah. Um, was that a, a hurdle for you at all? Or were you, were you I mean, you said that the, the previous uh, work was quite stressful or quite full on. So how did you, I mean, how mm -hmm. did you make that step? It was a hurdle. I guess I had some practice uh, having previously uprooted all of my stability and moving to France. Mm. Um, that was uh, an immensely challenging period for me, moving to a new country, uh, learning a new language. Uh, and getting a feel for what life is like without any any security or known known uh, uh, reference points, if you will. Mm. Uh, so perhaps that primed me for 
uh, what what many people would consider dramatic lifestyle changes. Um, I, I slowly tapered out of um, of technology. Uh, I consulted for a while. Um, my wife uh, is is a very uh, peripatetic French gypsy uh, woman, uh, for for lack of better better description, and she. Um, was very much the driver to our our extensive travels and uh, and the way we raised our children. Uh, specifically, they were homeschooled while we traveled. Um, so of course that that appealed to me uh, to document these trips, to document my family, um, and I was able to slowly back out of my career uh, through consulting. Uh, at at that by that time, I had started a company in France. I sold the company and um, the timing was, was opportune. I consulted for a while and we ended up um, on a dilapidated sailboat in, uh, in Panama actually. Um, and, and that was the beginning of my travel uh, uh, photography. Okay. Your life is way more exciting than my life. I'm just <laughs> gonna put that out there. Um, <laughs> so, uh, okay. Let's go. Let's get back into your timeline. So you were now you started working for the magazine, maybe picking up some other assignments on the side. Yeah. How do you get into that sort of um, travel documentary stuff? Like, I know you do some work with organizations like African Women Rising. How do you? How did you find your way to that kind of thing? Well, I guess I'll back up. I'll continue the um, the exotic travel stories. Um, Again, following my passion, following my family, uh, documenting our, our, our journey, uh, we, um, we, at one point, we jumped in our car when my daughter was two months old and drove from uh, California to Panama. Um, I documented that along the way. And then uh, at a later stage, we ended up in Brazil, um, buying a car there and driving around for um, for two separate three-month trips. And again, I'm taking pictures uh, the whole time. Um, the Brazil trip I, I shared with a friend of mine um, who worked with uh, Vogue magazine in Spain. And she said, these are, these are amazing. Uh, let me show them to my uh, colleagues um, at Condé Nast Traveler upstairs. Um, they saw my pictures and said, "Great, we, we'd love to publish these uh, these photographs of your of your family's journey." Um, so again, it it was um, very very fortuitous the way things lined up. It wasn't a, a clearly hatched idea of mine to publish pictures in in Condé Nast Traveler magazine, but really the content uh, and and the timing that allowed that to to happen. The that project you're talking about, um, or the I'm calling it a project, when you were in Brazil, mm -hmm. those pictures are on your website as a project, right? Uh, I believe they are still on my website. So I'll put the link yeah. in the show notes for people yeah. who want to see yeah. that. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So how did you find your way to Australia then? Um, again, um, you know, have, having had practice uh, moving to France, uh, we also we also ended up. Um, spending about 15 years in Mexico on and off. Um, Mexico is approximately next door to California. And uh, we ended up uh, finding a little, a little village there in the, in the jungle and um, uh, rebuilding an old home. And that was, that was our, our 
kind of parallel existence to California. Uh, a lot of this is driven by surf, by the way. That's that's the common uh, denominator between not between France, um, although there is great surf there, but California, Australia, Mexico, and Brazil were largely driven by uh, this this pursuit to find waves uh, and good surf. So Australia uh, was um, again kind of born out of this idea of, um, I guess discomfort with complacency um we we had a home we had everything that most people aspire to in california um and yet it somehow felt a little too comfortable and easy um having grown up there and spent many years there um so both my wife and i uh kind of seek out adventure and and change um, we had previously traveled to Australia about 15 years ago. Uh, the, the common mode of travel here is to, um, is to buy a van or something and, uh, mm -hmm. drive, drive the East coast and spend a month or two. It's such a, such a huge country. That's the most practical way to, to travel. So we, we, in fact, did that with our family. We bought a, we bought an old van for $600 and made a bed in the back and uh, drove um, up and down the coast of Australia for a few months and, and kind of explored it. And um, 15 years later, we ended up coming back. Uh, we sold our house in California and ended up on a, on a farm here um, behind Byron Bay in the hinterland. It sounds pretty cool. We, uh, we follow these uh, tiny house videos on YouTube. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Um, and so there's a lot in Australia and New Zealand. And um, we just think that life looks really, I don't think you could really do it here in the same way because it's, it's much colder and rainier. But if you have that outdoor kind of space, it seems like a great way to go at it. Absolutely. Well, you know, when we came here, we, um, we bought this piece of land uh, that had um, a, a dilapidated house on it uh, that we had to tear down. And we ended up living in a tent for two years uh yeah. and we 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 set up a really cool tent it's not your your average uh average boy scout tent we we found a, a safari tent uh mm -hmm. six by four meters and uh erected that on a creek and um really had had a lovely two years living in a tent in one rectangle um it was mm. just lovely we've since built a home and i'm i'm on the same on the same property um and i really miss miss being in the tent to be honest with you how old were the kids at the time uh, when you were living in the tent right so the kids are now grown um my wife and i lived in the tent alone and we actually built two tents uh the second tent um was for my uh, grown son and his uh his partner uh my other son lived in um in in this little microstructure that we built uh elsewhere on the property, uh, about, about 10 square meters, um, with a bed and have, having grown up, uh, traveling and on the road, um, my youngest son, who is now 20 is not particularly attached to, to possessions. So he really didn't need much more than, a, than 10 square meters in a bed. Mm. Uh, so we've, we've learned through our travels how to, how to live minimally.
Okay, this could become a completely different podcast, but let's yeah. go back to photography. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, really interested in that. I find, I'm, I've lived in the same town my whole life, and so mm-hmm. it's, uh, I really admire that you've been able to do that. It sounds really exciting. So uh, I want to talk about some of your projects. And um, the first one I wanted to talk or ask you about is, and I'm not going to say this correctly, but it's um, Odilo Lawini. We'll, we'll, <laughs> I'll try again. Odilo Lawini. Sure, that sounds great. In fact, um, I, I I don't think I can pronounce it any better than you can. Um, <laughs> that that is um, a Choli language, uh, which is the language spoken by about a million people um, in northern Uganda and South Sudan, um, mm. and it means a ball of scrap or something to that effect, loosely translated. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been working with a. Um, a, a, a NGO um, in northern Uganda for the past four years. It's a charitable organization called African Woman Rising. And uh, usually spend two weeks a year there uh, contributing my, my time pro bono to their projects. And these images are, are used uh, for fundraising eventually. So that's how the organization benefits. Um, the this this work allows me great access to areas that I would never be able to see uh, if I were just a tourist, and uh, it, it's really opened uh, many many doors. Uh, and then um, in the course of these travels, I, I noticed that uh, the kids uh, have this tradition of making soccer balls from uh, from scrap materials. Uh, plastic bags, uh, banana leaves, uh, an old piece of tire, um, mosquito netting. And they weave these things together into uh, a perfectly spherical ball that works as a soccer ball or a football and uh, have just as much fun as any kid playing with the latest uh, Nike ball, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, And these balls are really beautiful creations. Each one, of course, is unique. And I think they kind of reflect the character of the person that made them and, of course, the materials that were available. And uh, I really had the, the desire to highlight their, the beauty of these objects as, as sculptures and uh, couple that with my portraiture. Uh, and so I came up with the idea of um, using a field studio, uh, which is something I I often uh, do, essentially creating my uh, backdrop and light in the bush. And uh, I photograph the balls as objects and then the the person that made the ball uh, as a separate frame and assemble them into a diptych. Mm. Uh, So I have a series uh, that I made from these images and they've been really well received. I'm, I'm quite shocked to see uh, the impact these images have had. Um, they're currently on display at Photo Israel uh, and across the US in um, Photoville Fence. Um, I just won the, uh, uh, the uh, IPA awards uh, for this series as well. So it's uh, been very well received. It's quite a big deal, that kind of award, I think, isn't it? I, I knew one of the other photographers who won one um is a bit of a beast actually it's a guy i followed mm. for a long time called howard schatz yeah and of course. um so it's a it's a big deal so congratulations for that but um so i just 
I was really curious, because I, I, I know this is noted as a personal project, but I, I also know you'd been in Uganda as well. So was it something that you just observed while you were there doing a different project and then you, you put, picked it up as an idea? It was. Um, so the work for this charity organization, uh, as, as the name might indicate, uh, involves mostly women, uh, women that are benefiting uh, from the, uh, the education and microfinance training that they're providing. Um, and so the, the balls and the kids that made the balls are, are not directly connected to their area of interest. Um, something I did on the side while I was there. What, how did it come together where you, you saw the kids playing uh, with the balls? How the idea became a story for you? Did you have a, like an instinct for that kind of storytelling? Yeah, so um, I, I had previously photographed uh, kids holding these balls uh, in environmental portraits um, and was really satisfied with the images. But on a subsequent trip, wanted to to dig deeper into the into the into the real artistry of these balls and and somehow communicate that. And I think um, before leaving uh, on my trip, I noticed an article in the New York Times um where i believe it was um it was a baseball player and his uh playing mitt uh displayed as a, a diptych and um the idea really struck me as as appropriate for documenting these balls uh and i essentially uh borrowed borrowed the idea um uh, although the the concept of a diptych is is obviously well well known in photography but thought that would be an appropriate uh, method to really convey both the the, the uh, ball maker and the ball in the same uh, image. Mm, it's really well, well done. And I was going to ask you about the field studio anyway, but so where did you set up this field studio and what can you tell us about the field studio? So the, the images in this series were shot over three separate locations uh, in schools, essentially. Uh, and we set up in a classroom, in this case, it, field studio is probably not the best term. I set up a simple backdrop in a classroom, um, and, uh, lit it with a strobe as well. I had my camera on a tripod, suspended the ball with a string in front of a backdrop, uh, mm -hmm. and, and photographed it. Did the same for the kid. The backdrop was, um, was pretty messy. Uh, it wasn't terribly satisfied with that result when I got home. So I ended up um, substituting it for uh, a homogenous backdrop and post um, mm -hmm. to, to complete the series. Uh, just for clarity, you didn't suspend the kids on a string like you did the ball. Just, <laughs> just the balls were on a string, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, it's, so, it's so amazing. And, you know, um, my wife comes from Kenya, and I feel mm -hmm. like um, I've... You know, you were saying you, you get to places that you wouldn't get to as a tourist, and I, I know what you mean. And I I recognize these people in the in the, U, the Uganda one as well because it's a neighboring country. It's so evocative, you know. And you get into these places and you meet these people, and they're just they're just amazing people. And I I just um I love to see them photographed with such dignity. I, I know I said it before, rather than um as people to feel sorry for or, or so on. But um so I'm I'm really keen on that project. Um, so let me ask you, if I can, um, to segue about Sing Sing. What can you tell us about that project? Mm -hmm. um, 
Sing Sing follows a project I shot in India um, uh, of uh, sadhus um, at, in, in Rajasthan. Um, and I, I, I mentioned that because uh, they, they both involve a field studio. And uh, having shot a few uh, editorial uh, jobs for Santa Barbara Magazine, uh, I felt like uh, I, I kind of had a name and I was growing, but I wasn't really sure if, if I, again, like if I had the, the skills and the, um, the depth of work that I really aspired to and uh, decided to, to travel to India and with my wife and, and take some pictures. I'll get back to Sing Sing, but we'll start in India. Mm -hmm. And um, this is at the Pushkar Camel Fair and it's been photographed many times. Uh, it's a riot of activity and there's, there's camels and dust and tourists and sadhus. And it was a little bit too much visual information for me. Uh, I guess I have kind of a reductive uh, aesthetic and I think that comes from my engineering background somehow, this, this need to classify and, and simplify. Mm. So in India, I was very frustrated by uh, my inability to, to really capture the beauty of these subjects in this very complex uh, visual environment. So I ended up um, buying a piece of fabric and finding some bamboo poles and string and essentially creating a daylight field studio um photographed my subjects and was was really ecstatic about the results it was the first time i had done that fast forward to uh the sing sing project in papua new guinea uh again i wasn't really sure if my uh previous project in rajasthan was 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 uh, born out of good luck or if i was really as talented as 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 i thought the images mm. looked. I kind of wanted to prove the fact that I could do it twice. And mm. uh, I went to Papua New Guinea, again, personal project with my wife. Um, we were poorly informed and probably pretty naive about the whole the whole venture, but um, ended up on the ground in, uh, in Port Moresby, the capital of, uh, of Papua New Guinea, and set out uh, without any real clear plans to to document these um, these celebrations called Sing Sings. This time, rather than buying the fabric uh, on site, I brought uh, my backdrop with me. I brought light stands. I brought um, some empty sandbags that you fill with rocks or whatever to to work as sandbags. And um, I had I had my my setup much more dialed in. Uh, so we ended up uh, at these celebrations where the Papuans essentially are all in their full tribal regalia and uh, and compete. It's it's a sort of a, a beauty contest, for lack of better terms. Um, mm -hmm. It's a judged competition amongst the, the the Papuans to see what tribe is is best represented. And of course, they are eager to be seen, um, and they're quite happy to be photographed. Um, and I was very happy that I brought my backdrop. Again, it was uh, visually quite complex and chaotic, and I felt these subjects were so majestic that they would really benefit from from separation with the backdrop. Um, 
one funny story I, I set up um, my light stand with the sandbags and uh, inevitably a crowd of people uh, gathers around these stages um, mm. and I, I felt every bit as exotic as these people uh, probably probably felt to me uh, I think they were looking at us like we came from Mars and vice versa mm -hmm. at one point uh, I'm photographing someone against the backdrop and the whole uh, set collapses it fell over and the, the light stands fell fell in and uh we went to pick up the pieces it turns out someone had stolen the sandbags um <laughs> so evidently they thought those were of great great value and uh someone someone picked up the sandbags which was which was pretty funny if we were deep in the bush uh, i couldn't imagine what what purpose a sandbag might have for anyone there but um <laughs> I don't know. But, Maybe they had a photography business. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. But those pictures, uh, again, it was it was a personal project, but they uh, they were subsequently published in Geo magazine in Germany, uh, several magazine covers, um, publications, and 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 awards uh, grew out of that project. They're just amazing pictures, and obviously, you know, the, the guys uh, in the pictures look incredible with their you know their traditional clothing on and so on. And the the paint, but the, the, what got me was just the level of connection. You know, you know how you can someone can be there, but they're not really there. But there, people mm -hmm. in the shots are really mm -hmm. connected, and doing that presumably through a language barrier. I think it's amazing, really. So, can you speak to how you achieve that? It's a really good question, and and others have pointed that out as well. Um, and as, as you say, there was definitely a language barrier. Often that is the case with my subjects. So um, I, I resort to communicating with my, with my eyes, with gestures, with, um, with empathy and curiosity. I'm genuinely interested in, in these people I'm photographing. And I imagine that they, they perceive that somehow. That's mm -hmm. the only thing I, I can ascribe this connection to. Mm -hmm. and, and often I will work with a translator and uh, I've had this in the past. I'll say, well, have the subject turn to the left a little bit or we need him to raise his chin a little. And the translator will say this or eventually the translator will just go to the person and grab their shoulders and twist them and move them around mm -hmm. like a mannequin. <laughs> and uh, and I learned I could do that myself. Uh, it's it's kind of funny. I can walk up to people um, with whom I can't share one word in a common language, and I've I've learned that with with appropriate um, visual connection and um, and an emotional connection, I can I can twist them and move them and and get them to to position as needed. And we all end up laughing at the end. I think humor is is an important element. Yeah, for sure. In terms of connecting with people, and it's that sort of universal, isn't it? Uh, so just to round up on this, so you and your wife just went there, you've got your kit with you, it was you're going to get those shots with the field studio. That was your goal on that trip. Yeah, that's right. Um, we, we flew to Australia. Uh, from California, we flew to Brisbane, and then there's a quick airport transfer in Brisbane to uh, Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. At the airport in Australia, um, we were queued up with fellow passengers and, and people were looking at us and asking, well, you know, are you really prepared to go to Papua New Guinea? Um, it, it, it has this reputation of being extremely dangerous. There, there are uh, a, allegedly a 
tribes of, of hooligans in the streets that um, uh, are violent and um, and everyone was really concerned uh, about our, our safety and, and importantly our lack of preparation in that respect. Um, when we got there, uh, a Papuan on the airplane uh, said, "Well, look, I'll give you a ride uh, to the to a hotel. That way, you won't have to to deal with the taxis. That can also be dangerous." So there was this notion of danger that everyone was describing. Um, that you know, again, maybe through total uh, naivete, we we were able to uh, to avoid. Um, maybe maybe we're. Just, just trusting and open, and that's that's perceived um, by others. It, it's hard for me to really describe, but the the only uh, issue we had again was the someone stole a sandbag, um, mm. which is certainly certainly not a problem. But um, yeah, we ended up uh, flying in on a on a small uh, Cessna airplane to um, to a remote village called um, Simbai. Uh, we landed on a dirt airstrip, and the pilot agreed to return three days later uh, to pick us up. And uh, we get out of the airplane on the grass, and the locals start appearing to, to greet us. They, they greet the airplane because it has supplies. It brings in rice and a few things. And there was this elaborate uh, procession. Uh, of, of people with drums and in full regalia that greeted us from the walk from the airstrip to the village it's about two kilometers and for the whole uh, distance it was aligned with people applauding our arrival giving us flowers beating drums the whole thing was surreal we ended mm. up eventually meeting the the tribal chef the chief and he greeted us and was very warm. And he said, is this, is this all the people in your group? And we said, well, yeah, this is my wife and I. And he said, well, um, we, we thought that there would be more of you. And it turns out that they were expecting a television crew uh, from the, the state uh, television channel. And they thought that, that that's who we were. They, must, they, they oh, mistook okay. us for this crew. <laughs> Uh, so we got the full the full reception accidentally. That's amazing! What an amazing experience. I wonder if you know people are were, were you had you been warned that it was going to be dangerous and you found it wasn't so so bad. You're obviously quite experienced at traveling. You've met people from all over. Um, you know, there's that comfort of just being able to to be there and be comfortable and bring that okayness with it yourself. Do you know what I mean? Um, like I find when I'm in Kenya. When I tell people that my wife's a Kenyan, everybody sort of relaxes, you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It's, I'm really taken in and welcomed in. And it's like, you know, you're one of the, the crew. But I just I just wonder if that because um, you have that travel experience, it, you just sort of naturally carry a comfort with being around different kinds of people, you know. I, I think that's very well put. Um, and I would agree. Um, I've traveled to about 65 countries now. Uh and yeah, would consider myself well traveled. Um, so in the end, I think fear breeds fear, and um, compassion breeds compassion. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But ne- never underestimate the the stupidity of a large crowd. Um, that's one thing I've, I've discovered. Um, but uh, the individual uh, is 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 always 
we're all we're all the same family. That's how I see it. Mm. Let me ask you about one more project before we start to um, move on. Um, and it's it's the northern Uganda one. I've jumped out of, at me because of again my connection to Africa, but I just I love these ones. I really like these ones. There's a shot with um, it looks like a family outside a sort of traditional home, um, and the lady's got like a like a farming kind of tool, and there's um, some other family members behind. Um, mm-hmm. I love that shot, and then there's the shot of the landmines. Be aware of the landmines sign. Um, it's just great. It's it's great. But there was a shot, I think, from this project with a a, a kid looking at a, a blackboard, I think. But there's someone arm, somebody's arm is going over the top. That one, I just, I love that shot. So, what can you tell us about the Northern Uganda project? Mm-hmm. So uh, again, all these shots uh, are connected with the charity organization African Women Rising, um, and I. I, I like to add uh, perhaps unexpected levels of production to my to my images. Um, there was a brief uh, moment in my career when I worked as a commercial photographer in Los Angeles. We we skipped over that, but uh, I became very comfortable with studio lighting, uh, medium format cameras, and and higher levels of production than one would typically imagine for uh, travel documentary photography. Mm. Um, so the first shot you mentioned, the woman uh, standing in front of a, a traditional hut, um, that's with a medium format, uh, like a S and a, and a strobe. So I, th- I think these images stand out because of, of the subtle uh, production quality that, that's, mm. that's brought in by, by the tools I use. Uh, the chalkboard image in particular um, has been really well received. Again, that, that image just won a, a big uh, award in Australia. Um, I'm really, really um, grateful to have received that. Uh, we were in a classroom uh, documenting uh, students and, and tutors. Um, and it's uh, it's the scene that I've been in many times in Uganda. And um, I've noticed that often those pictures turn out looking to be the same. I really wanted to incorporate uh, an additional element uh, in this shot and was um, was hoping to get a foreground element and uh, kind of shooting through people and under things. And really just uh, was quite fortuitous and had this, this uh, moment of uh, when the teacher is passing a piece of chalk to another student in the foreground while uh, a student is writing at the board. And it, it formed a frame um, giving a foreground element uh, that, that really makes the image successful. Mm, it's really terrific. Um, I was curious, when you get to a place like that to shoot a project, um, do you just sort of throw yourself in and start shooting or do you, you pause for a moment and observe things before you get stuck in? What's your kind of approach when you get on the ground like that? I take a minute and look around. Um, I kind of have this this feeling uh, that that I can't articulate clearly, but uh, oftentimes I will stand in a location and I will feel that there was a photograph somewhere to be made there. And um, it just feels visually rich and compelling. 
And it, it often takes me a few minutes to understand how to make the, the photograph uh, that, that fully depicts what I'm, what I'm sensing internally. Um, so I, I, I go off of this feeling. It's a little alarm bell that says, hey, stop for a second. There's an image here, figure it out. Um, maybe it'll, maybe it means come back the next day when the light's right or when, when, uh, when the elements align. Uh, but I, I really enjoy slowing the process down. Um, I, I, I have kind of, um, I have two styles of shooting and, and they're dictated by my equipment choice, really. Um, I mentioned I shoot medium format. I light, um, I like to use a tripod. I really enjoy the deliberate um, act of making a portrait that way. Mm. Uh, I find that um, the subject often uh, becomes uh, bored, for lack of better terms, uh, by me setting up all my kit, and they they end up relaxing. And I think that's mm. that's uh, apparent in the shot. And on the other side, I like to shoot with a Leica Q, uh, which is a small mirrorless uh, fixed 28 millimeter full frame camera. Um, and that's really my go-to camera these days. The, um, the shot you mentioned with the chalkboard of shot with a Leica Q. I typically don't light when I have that camera. Uh, it's, it, I feel quite quick and nimble and it's really an extension uh, of, of, of how I think. That's great. That was you've just answered my next couple of questions, which were going to be about your gear. So, uh, and it's interesting then that the 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 camera sort of speaks to the type of photography that you'll do, or vice versa, the, to the tool that you'll choose. Okay. So, what else comes with you in your bag? You've got the cameras. Would would you take, you know, the medium format? Uh, would you take both types of cameras to any location, or would you just pack light for going to say Uganda or one of these kind of far flung places? Yeah, that, that's always a tricky um, question. I, I will spend uh, weeks uh, preparing my kit prior to getting on an airplane. Um, in fact, another another trip I have for traveling is to pack my, my luggage, not only my camera gear, but, but, but my clothing, and live out of my luggage for a week before leaving, just to make sure I didn't forget the obvious things. Um, hmm. And I kind of... Um, quarantine myself to the stuff that I intend to take. Um, mm. But as far as camera gear on my trips, I typically bring uh, two Pelican boxes, uh, the 1510 roller cases that fit um, in the old days, they would fit in aircraft overhead bins. Um, nowadays, the seven kilo weight restriction often prevents that. Mm. But um, on one case, I uh, carry my lighting, and the other case, I carry my cameras. Um, and then when I'm in the field, I will often uh, remove the elements that I really need for that particular day and put them in a small canvas shoulder bag. Um, or if I'm lucky, we'll have a car, and I can bring both, both Pelican cases in the car and use that as my, my staging ground, if you will. What kind of strobe is it you that you take with you? I use Profoto uh, B10. Okay, that's coming up a lot. It's uh, it's obviously got a really good reputation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I enjoy it. It's lightweight. Um, does exactly what I need. Brilliant. Okay, um, let's move on a little bit. And I've got a special round here called Double Exposure. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm just going to pick a shot of yours to ask you about, although I've already asked you about a few, but there's one particular shot I wanted to ask you about. 
and then maybe there's a shot or a moment or, a, or an experience in your career that you could talk to that's been really outstanding and memorable. So the one I wanted to ask you about, um, I'm really asking this for my four-year-old daughter because she thought this shot was hilarious. Hmm. And uh, there's a shot from the Uganda project where there's uh, two kids, I guess they're twins, and they're breastfeeding at the same time hmm. um, on the on the mom. Um, what can you tell us about that shot? Yeah, that's um, there's actually quite a quite a story behind that image. Um, it's not uncommon to see to see uh, breastfeeding uh, mothers in Uganda uh, and in Africa, and it's not mm. uncommon to have twins. Um, I learned the other day that um, mammals typically have um, typical litter size is uh, is it twice the number of teats uh, or half the number of teats, something to that effect. But there's a correlation between the teats on the animal and the litter size. And okay. uh, so human beings are built to feed two, two babies at the same time. And that's clearly what this woman mm. is doing simultaneously. They're twins. Mm. Um, one of them, they, they, they both look like their cheeks are full and they're plump little healthy babies. But um, sadly, it turns out that one of them actually had um, uh, a, a rare form of cancer uh, that created this, um, there was a tumor, in fact, in this child's uh, cheek. Mm. Um, and I only discovered that it was, it was quite strange. So I took this photograph, we spoke to the mother, the mother was concerned, but really didn't know what to do. And none of the local doctors had any uh, particularly uh, good information uh, on the situation. Um, a month after taking this photograph, I'm back in California. I run into a doctor friend and uh, I said, hey, um, in fact, this doctor worked for an organization, a charity organization that treats children with this rare cancer disease in Africa. And I ended up putting A and B together. I'm certainly not a doctor, but I, I asked this man if, if by chance um, this, I might have photographed a child with this, this rare form of cancer. And um, he, he confirmed that it, that it exists and that, that that's a possibility. So I ended up uh, going back through the charity and providing this information. And um, we, we exceptionally uh, made a unique case for this woman and uh, provided her medical care for her child and got her to a hospital in, uh, in the capital of Kampala. And um, just, just by accident of my running into this friend and learning about mm -hmm. this, this, this illness, were we able to kind of assemble the resources and the information to to help this family out. Um, mm -hmm. I went back a year later and photographed them and, uh, and the kids were, were not breastfeeding this time, but I have another image that I should probably pair mm -hmm. with the original um, where they're standing at her side and she has her hand on, either, on, on the head of each child. Mm -hmm. And um, the one with the cancer was, was cured. That's, that is just incredible. I mean, how does that make you feel? Well, um, I guess it's the power of photography um, expressed in, in a really unexpected way. Makes me feel great. That's amazing. I'd love to see that photo, if you don't mind. Um, the follow-up, um, yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Happy to um, it, that, that might, You might have already answered the next question. If there was an amazing epic moment uh, or amazing shot that's, that really stands out for you. I don't think there's anything that can top that, is there? 
That's, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I guess that's, that's a really unique story insofar as uh, someone's, someone's health was, was directly impacted by, by a photograph. Um, I, I think I'd have a hard time topping that, to be honest with you. Mm. Okay, let's move on to the quick fire round. And we're getting near the end, uh, Brian, because uh, I know mm -hmm. we're going a little bit over time here. But um, okay, it's a quick fire round. So I'm just going to bash through this, okay? Wide angle or telephoto? Wide angle. 28 millimeters specifically. Oh, okay, cool. Very specific. Good. Head or heart? Head. Um, okay, what was the last great book, movie, series, or album you experienced? Mm -hmm. Gosh, I've got a whole bunch of great uh, books um, I'm reading, and they're, the stack of books beside my bed is tall, and I'm trying to narrow it down to one specific one because this is the quick fire round. I'm really on the spot. <laughs> um, Oh, I'm totally striking out on this one, Graham. Um, yeah, you have to hit reset on this. Pressure, okay, pressure. Pressure has got me on the favorite book. Hmm. So let's move on. Would you use an expensive lens cloth or just the corner of your shirt? Um, I am known to use the corner of my shirt, but if I have a lens cloth, um, I'd prefer that. Uh, what's a weird thing I can find in your camera bag? Uh, mosquito repellent and sunscreen. Yeah, you gotta have it. Okay, favorite photographer right now? Right now, you know, I, I, I anticipated you would ask a question like this, and um, I came up with a list of my photographic inspiration, and I can give you one name, uh, or I can go through mm -hmm. a dozen. Um, Nadav Kander um, is, is really uh, someone who, whose work I admire greatly, and I have the Great fortune of taking a workshop with them uh, at the Palm Springs Photo Festival. Uh, okay, Nadav Kander, we'll put the link in the show notes um, for mm -hmm. people. Um, okay, is there a dream location or project you'd love to photograph? Yeah, I'm, I'm eager to uh, return to uh, Uganda. Um, right now, travel is not permitted uh, from or to Australia, so I can't leave the country. Um, there's a there's a project um, that uh, I'm dreaming of would be following uh, South Sudanese refugees that are currently in um, camps in um, Uganda, following them on their return trip home. There are more mm -hmm. than a million refugees in uh, in Uganda, and as security conditions improve in South Sudan. Um, they will be returning to their to their homes, and uh, mm. documenting that would be a fascinating project. Mm. My wife was just on the phone yesterday to a friend in South Sudan, mm -hmm. and uh, she, had, she was a school friend, and she hasn't spoken to him since you know, like twenty years ago. And um, so he's got, I think he's got one Kenyan parent and one Sudanese parent, and has, somehow his Kenyan paperwork isn't isn't lined up. And so he, he has to be in Sudan just now. So he's got kids and um, it's, it's, there's, he's seeing the shooting. It's, it's dangerous. He goes out. He doesn't know if he's going to come back, but he's doing yeah, some kind of NGO yeah. work there. I don't think it's quite, quite time to return, but uh, that project is definitely in my queue. Mm, well, I hope you can get to it. Um, okay. When do you feel at peace with the universe? When I'm surfing or, or maybe, uh, maybe after doing yoga that I practice regularly mm -hmm. as well. Cool. Okay, what's the future looking like for you? I know it's a bit tricky with the restrictions and so on at the moment, but 
where do you see things going photography wise in the next couple of years? Um, I, you know, I have a lot of um, activity this year in the form of festivals uh, that unfortunately I've, I haven't been able to attend. Um, there's currently Israel, the United States. Uh, I have a, a show coming up um, at the Exposure Festival in uh, Sharjah, which is in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm very eager to go to that one uh, in February, if possible. Um, but I, I anticipate uh, continued work on my project uh, in Uganda. Uh, that really gives me great, great um, pleasure to to know that my photographs are of, of humanitarian service, um, and it allows me to to push my artistic uh, boundaries as well. Um, where can people go to connect with you, support your work, and find out more about what you do? I have my website, brianhodgesphoto.com, as well as Instagram, uh, brian underscore Hodges uh, on Instagram. That's great. Brian, thank you for your time. We could have talked, or I could have let you talk for much longer. The more I talk to you, there's more things being uncovered that are interesting to me, but um, our time is up. So thanks so much. I really appreciate you calling in from Australia. And uh, sorry that I thought you were Australian. (laughs) uh, No no apologies needed. Really a pleasure speaking with you. I I really enjoyed uh, the conversation and and happy to continue uh, anytime you feel free. Thanks for listening. Well, I hope you had a few takeaways from this episode. It just makes me want to have a much more exciting life than I really do. Follow Brian on Instagram and check out his website. Links and links to some of the other things we spoke about, as usual, are in the show notes. Um, I would love to connect with you. Again, links for my social media are in the notes below the show. And you can check out the Viewfinders website where you can find out all about what I do. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe on your favorite platform. And if you feel like it, you could leave a kind review. That really helps the show reach more people. And uh, while you're there, why not check out some more episodes from season one? Uh, Okay, enjoy photography. Have a great Christmas and New Year. Be kind, and I'll see you out there.